Just give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress Kamen is a fresh talk radio approach promoting happiness from the inside out. Happiness is a choice and happiness can be cultivated and harvested. Each week, Lisa shines her light on well-being and global human flourishing by presenting a diverse and proactive collection of the greatest thinkers and doers who have devoted their lives to creating a better world in which to live. As a filmmaker, positive psychology coach, author, professor, and change agent specializing in the field of happiness, Lisa Cybers Kamen is widely recognized as an expert in the field. On the show, she also focuses on military families and service personnel returning with PTSD, traumatic brain injury and other post-deployment civilian life reintegration issues. So, let's spend some time getting to the heart of the matter on Harvesting Happiness on toginet.com. And now, here's your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Good afternoon and good evening wherever you are. Welcome to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio, where we explore the very serious business of happiness, sustainable well-being, and human flourishing. We are not talking about that annoying yellow smiley face. No, no, no. We are talking about something much deeper and critical to the success of humanity. Authentic happiness is not selfish, egotistical, or narcissistic. In fact, it is essential in order for humankind to thrive. Sustainable happiness is important because it not only elevates our own well-being locally, but also contributes to collective global flourishing. The achievement of a happy life is not only positively good for us, it is constructively good for those around us. In short, happiness matters. Happiness comes from the heart, and this show is most definitely all about the heart. If you hear something that you like, connect with us. Follow me on Twitter at Lisa Kamen and HH Talk Radio or tweet at us with the hashtag Harvesting Happiness. Alrighty then, let's get to it. We are talking today about the future of feeding, about new innovative ways that are here now and being developed in the future for creating sustainable farming, albeit urban or, or rural, but farming in a way that is more uh, socially responsible, that is pesticide-free, that is has fabulous quality control. And one of my guests has been doing just that for many, many years. Dixon Depommier has spent 38 years as a professor of microbiology and public health in environmental health sciences at Columbia where he has won the Best Teacher Award six times. In 2003, he was awarded the American Medical Student Association Golden Apple Award for teaching. He has addressed audiences at leading universities, including Harvard and MIT, and he has been invited to speak at the United Nations. He has been asked by governments far away and close by, including China, India, Mexico, Jordan, Brazil, Canada, and Korea, to work on environmental problems. Um, Dr. Despamier lives in Fort Lee, New Jersey, and his book, The Vertical Farm, says that vertical farming will allow us to do incredible great things uh, to serve the world with nourishing food, really 24-7. And that's what we're talking about, the state of the future of feeding. Good morning, Dixon. Thanks for joining us. Uh, Lisa, it's a pleasure to be here. 
Well, it is a pleasure to have you on the show because as I expressed prior to coming on the air with you, I have a daughter that recently graduated from high school and she is going into a food studies program that includes um, the study of the economics, politics, and marketing of food and the state of creating food for the future. So I am d- delighted that you're here because what you have to share is here now but will have such a long-term effects for the world to come in food production that, you know, my hope is that we will be able to eradicate hunger with these kinds of programs. Yeah, I share that uh, vision. I, I Absolutely. So let's tell our, our listeners or explain to our listeners what vertical farming is. Sure. Um, it's really quite simple to explain, but difficult to achieve, <laughs> as so many other things are. You know, so <clears throat> I start with the concept that Leonardo da Vinci said it would be a great idea if we could fly, and it took quite a while for us to come up to speed on that one. So <clears throat> it would be a great idea if we could allow cities or urban centers, doesn't matter if it's a city or just a crowded area, to supply safe and healthy food for the people that actually live right there rather than waiting for the truck to arrive with their produce on it that may be, let's say, coming from hundreds of miles or thousands even miles away, and uh, perhaps half of it is not edible because it's spoiled on the way over. Um, Urban agriculture used to be very popular throughout the world in the beginning when agriculture first arose, but uh, has obviously been displaced by technology and uh, the built environment and all the infrastructure associated with it. So today we find ourselves in a position to revisit urban agriculture in a new way, which allows us to take advantage of technology that has been developed <clears throat> pardon me, over the last, let's say, 50 years, which has raised the um, level of growing food from a greenhouse, which is a single-story building, to multiple-story buildings doing the same thing. So a, a vertical farm is essentially a multiple-storied greenhouse. Now, and to make a multiple-story greenhouse is not an easy deal. That's the problem. And so it's taken some time for this concept to actually mature. But mature it has, so we have a lot to talk about. Well, and, and this vertical farming concept, the, the, the beauty of it is that it can, it can operate 24-7. Exactly. Well, a greenhouse so can, we can too. Be- I mean, uh, you know, in, in this case, a greenhouse could essentially grow food year-round as well. If they employ grow lights, say, for instance, when the sun goes down, they could keep going 24-7 if they so desired. Most of them don't, but they could. And, in fact, there is one out in the, uh, the desert region of Arizona called Eurofresh Farms, which is a totally indoor greenhouse operation that uses solar panels to collect the uh, electricity to make the grow lights work, and they're 24-7. So it's very possible to, uh, to actually engineer such a deal. But to, to stack them on top of each other and to move them close to where people live in cities, that's the, that's the big trick. And when we do this, when we have this vertical farming system, let's say with lighting, and I've seen some videos where the lights are, reg- you know, the color of the lights are highly regulated, so it That's right. makes the quality control of the vegetables sure. that are being grown um, really quite perfect in a, in a yeah. year-round setting. Yeah, I mean, um, if you think about the number of years it took humanity to come up to speed with regards to their own comfort zone for living, 
that is a house and we moved from a cave <laughs> so to speak to you know constructed houses that are now temperature and humidity controlled and even the lighting is uh, is uh, customs to whatever you you want uh, why haven't we paid as much attention to our food as we have to ourselves and brought our food indoors with us so that we could offer them the same comfort zones as we enjoy right now so uh, basically what you're just what you just described is a late in uh, life so to speak <laughs> for the human condition at least uh, approach to making our food as comfortable as we are when we sit in our uh, easy chair and open a newspaper or turn on the television. Plants deserve the same attention that we do. In fact, without them, we're going to die. So why? Uh, it's taken us a long time to come to that realization, but here we are. To grow food in a comfortable, healthy environment where the the Absolutely. lighting is good, the soil is superior, there are no pesticides. I mean, the, the, this vertical farming or indoor farming in general allows for a lot of benefit that is nutritional. Absolutely. Well, I can actually eliminate one of the things you just said, and uh, without offense, um, indoor farming does not require soil. So That's we can true. actually, Yes, we can actually do all of this without the uh, complications of importing soil indoors which may contain all of the things that the plants need, of course, to grow, but it may also contain other things like plant pathogens, for instance, that the plants uh, don't need, or the contaminants from some things that we've done uh, which inadvertently have contaminated soil, like, for instance, heavy metals and pesticides and things of this sort. So if you eliminate soil and break down the uh, physiology of a plant into its requirements, you can narrow the number of elements that you really need to keep that plant alive to about 18 out of the 92 elements that exist naturally. You can use just those 18 elements in a solution like miracle Grow. Everybody's kind of familiar with miracle Grow, and you dissolve it in water and sprinkle it on your plants, and they seem to do better, and they, of course they do better because you're, you're fertilizing them. So the concept of doing that without soil means that you can avoid all these other things in your growing systems that may result in some problems later on. So soil uh, turns out to be not such a great deal, and, and it also weighs a lot. So these indoor growing systems that don't employ soil are extremely lightweight, and for that reason you can stack up many of them inside of a building without worrying about uh, stressing out the building itself. So you can actually build on top of roofs of buildings and make your vertical farms that way if you'd like to. So the um, the little starter pod, if you will, that will start the the growth of the seed, it, mm -hmm. it's a water based, or are there other other substances? Like I've seen videos where they're using um, coconut, like that. It's a, some exactly. kind of a coconut exactly. byproduct. That's right. They they use the fiber from the outer husk of the coconut plant, of the you know, the coconut shell itself. If they macerate that into a fiber-like uh, spongy material, uh, it sort of fools the seeds of the plants into thinking that it's now in soil. So if you supply nutrients in a, an aqueous solution and sort of water that little pod that you've created, the plant will sprout roots and up to come the leaves, and the next thing you know, you've got a head of lettuce. Um, there's another growing medium like that. Well, you're familiar with one of them. It's called vermiculite which is an inert material, 
but you can make it the consistency of soil. So when it gets wet, the plants think that they're in soil because basically that's what soil is. It's a series of particles that the plants don't use, and these little um, uh, capillary-actioned water um, rivulets that form in between the particles that the root systems actually take advantage of. So uh, another good um, growing medium turns out to be um, uh, volcanic uh, rock that you can pulverize and uh, and make into the consistency of outdoor soil. It has no nutritional value whatsoever, but it, it's a solid substrate for the uh, plants to grow in. Amazing. And we're going to talk yeah. more about the notion of urban farming, what we can do in our cities to um, to eat what we grow. You're listening to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio with Lisa Cypress-Kamen and my guest today, Dr. Dixon Depommier. To learn more, please visit www.verticalfarm.com. We're going to go to a break, and when we return, we'll carry on the conversation about the future of feeding. Here come those tunes. Love is in the air. Love is in the air. Happiness is an inside job. Wear the message on t-shirts, baseball caps, sterling silver designer jewelry, and more. Please visit our online boutique at www.harvestinghappiness.com. Are you or do you know a returning U.S. military man or woman in need of restoring joy in their lives? Did you know that our nonprofit, Harvesting Happiness for Heroes, offers stigma-free combat trauma and post-deployment reintegration programming? Check us out at www.hh4heroes.org. That's HH, the number four, and heroes.org. Nothing gives happiness like a free gift. Lisa Cypress Cayman has made her first ebook, Got Happiness Now? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life, available at no cost to everyone. Unwrap your complimentary copy now by visiting www.harvestinghappinesstalkradio.com. Love is in the air, in the whisper of the tree. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just join, joining us now, we are talking about the future of feeding, what farming is looking like now, how it has changed, and where we are going. And my guest today is Dixon de, de Pommier. He is a professor of microbiology and public health and environmental health sciences at Columbia. He is an author. He has written the book, The Vertical Farm. And he's talking with me today about advents in farming and what we can do to grow uh really virtually 365 days a year and grow in urban environments and what the impact is of growing our own food in densely populated cities, what effect it has on its inhabitants, um, which I would venture to say, and I think Dixon, you would too, would be happier people that are more well-fed. No question about it. Um, They're all happy to know exactly where their food comes from, for one thing. The other thing they love about the indoor growing systems that are near them is they can visit them. They can actually watch them do this. 
So if you can actually watch your food being grown, uh, that has a huge advantage, and it takes out the fear factor from, um, gee, does this tomato contain any heavy metals, for instance, or does it contain any microbes that might do me harm? Um, a lot of uh, recent outbreaks of foodborne illnesses around the world have really uh, focused attention on the uh, foibles, so to speak, of, of wanting to do the right thing outdoors, but uh, you don't have any control that way. So the best way to control everything is to do it indoors. Uh, and indoor farming has really caught on from, from that perspective. So I'm, I'm quite <laughs> amazed <laughs> at its uh, early success, basically, from the concept that arose in a classroom some 10 years ago. There are a couple of restaurants. I'm thinking of one, I believe it's in the West Village in Manhattan, that they grow everything that they sell. Uh, all their produce is grown on the roof. And they go up there and they you know, collect well. their daily harvest and bring it back yeah. down and prepare it. It's fantastic. Exactly. The guy's name is John Mooney. Uh, he's a good friend of mine, and he runs the restaurant called Bell Book and Candle. And uh, he uses tower grow systems, which are uh, actually home units. that And anybody can buy these uh, home growing units. It's a, essentially a, a PVC tower uh, that has a ports cut out of it at various levels. And there's a pump inside of this device that takes the nutrient solution in this tub that the pump sits in, and it pumps it up into the inside of this column. And the root systems of the plants sort of grow into the tube. And on the outside, of course, you get your edible plants. And on the inside, you get the root systems. It's called an aeroponic growing system as opposed to hydroponics. And it's being sold all over the place. And it was invented by a guy who used to work at Epcot Center. And I think people who are familiar with Epcot Center know that they, when you take the tour, you get to see plants of all kinds that are edible being grown indoors. And I don't know why in the world that concept never took off, but uh, apparently they just looked at it, wow, Epcot Center is a great place because you can go there and watch food being grown. Why hasn't that caught on other places? And, and lo and behold, it now has. It now has, and this this is a really good thing, um, because we can uh, help eradicate hunger with, with this here, here. methodology, and that's what here, I here. find the most exciting, that there, there, know, uh, there will I, be if, no excuses for people going none. hungry. If you'll allow me to just say something, I mean, I mean I, you introduced me as a, a person who teaches or taught at a school of public health. So, you know, when the Millennium Development Goals first came out and were published, I'm not sure if any of your listeners are very familiar with them, but they listed extreme poverty as the first thing to try to conquer. And the next thing below that was extreme hunger. And the next thing below that was illiteracy. So um, if you had a choice of those three, because you do, you have to make a choice here, you can't address them all at once. Uh, and so putting your money <clears throat> um, in, the, in the most productive place to alleviate one of those three things which would then have an effect on the other two. My choice would always be eliminate extreme hunger. Because if you can yeah. do that, <clears throat> then people can stay in school longer because they don't get sick as often, because their immune system is healthier. And as a result of that, the, liter the literacy rate goes up. And as a result of that, extreme poverty goes down. So you've got those three things interconnected, you know, extreme hunger, that is, you know, malnutrition, um, <clears throat> illiteracy, and um, poverty. Those are all absolutely linked. 
And so the first line of defense, I would say, is to eliminate extreme hunger. People who go to bed uh, well-fed uh, don't usually wake up in the morning trying to think of how to fly an airplane into a building. And I was here. When well said. Uh, by the way, I've also been to a country called Bhutan, and I'm sure you're familiar with it because they yes, claim I that am. their gross, nag- national, their gross happiness. national product is <laughs> happiness. And the reason why they're all happy <clears throat> there, and I'm, I can attest to this because I actually saw it and, and felt it, was because everybody was well-fed. And the reason why they're well-fed is because it's a country that has very few people, and everybody grows their own food. And and that's the secret. I mean, if you can do it as a small country, then you can get away with uh, not having to industrialize and, and, and become large. But, of course, that hasn't happened in many other places. So, therefore, the, the happiness quotient went down as the production quotient went up, I guess. <laughs> so uh, we find ourselves in an unusual place today. Well, what I th- you say something very interesting in that um, in a place like Bhutan where people are growing uh, their food, that the government prizes uh, happiness or the well-being of its people yes. b- right. above product, uh, that's, that's something very different than, than the, the rest of the more common cultures. No question. And I think that the situation would be totally different if indeed many of the Bhutanese did go to bed hungry every night. They would start to feel very unhappy about waking up the next morning without any expectation. Indeed. In an urban farming environment, there are a couple of other things that happen that are interesting. One Mm -hmm. is uh, the ability to reuse water collected from the indoor environment. And two are jobs for its residents. Indeed. Those are linked. And uh, I gather that your your show emanates from California because you told me that already. And uh, California right now is probably the most challenged place on earth with regards to water use, and you know this as well as everybody else. I mean, there are restrictions on the water that you can use to clean your car or water your lawn, or uh, they're even having restrictions on the amount of water that each toilet now uses to flush. Uh, They're thinking of using gray water. Uh, There are already communities that do that, but not many. Um, And so where is, (laughs) and the farmers of California, which is about a a $60 billion industry, are now looking at each other and throwing up their hands and saying, you know, where did all this start? And, of course, uh, there's no single correct answer for that one. But but I do know that there is a vertical farm that just recently opened in Irvine, California, which isn't too far away from you. And they're a vertical farm, and they, they reuse all their water. They use 70% less water than a commercial farmer outdoors uses, and they can recycle it. So when you've wow. got those advantages in this kind of a situation, I think you're going to see a, a huge push forward, at least in the state of California, to institute urban agriculture within the built environment. And I'm, I'm very excited to see what's going to happen. Well, there are some very interesting uh, farms uh, coming online. We've got uh, near me, which is near Malibu, we've got its Howling's tomatoes, and that was uh-huh. the one that I mentioned to you that uh, that I'm familiar with, and they are growing twenty four seven. You can drive through the fields that was once a traditional um, farming environment. Uh, yeah. The lights are going twenty twenty four hours a day, and these tomatoes are stunning. I mean, in the middle of winter, you're getting summer tomatoes. Yeah. It's yeah, how crazy. About that? <laughs> yeah, 
Well, you know, it's interesting you should uh, mention tomatoes because the t- everybody thinks about greenhouse tomatoes. Yeah, well, you know, you can do that, but what else can you do? Um, the idea about growing hydroponically actually started a long, long, long time ago, but was popularized uh, back in the 1930s at the University of California at Davis. And there was a professor there who said, why can't we grow all of our crops using a water-based solution with the nutrients dissolved in it? Because, you know, if you look at uh, a lake, for instance, and you look at the plants that grow in the water along the edge of the lake, those are all growing hydroponically. And he said the variety of plants that grow there are tremendous. So he says, I bet you we can grow any plant this way. You know, guess what his first plants were that he tried to grow hydroponically? And he published a book called called Soilless Agriculture. The first plant that he picked was potatoes. Wow. (laughs) Yeah, no one would have guessed that one, right? No, no. My mind went to a very different place when you said that. (laughs) (laughs) What he did was he used wooden rafts that floated on top of a nutrient solution. And he took the cut eyes of potatoes and germinated them so that they would sprout. And then he positioned them on this floating raft. And the next thing you knew, you've got these big green tops, and below them was the root system that had attached to them all the potatoes. So, uh, you know, he actually published pictures of this, and he made a big deal about it because he said this is probably the last crop in the world that you'd ever want to grow hydroponically but i can show you how to do it and so if you can do potatoes you can do all the other crops and in fact there are examples of um, every kind of crop including fruits and herbs and grains and uh, root vegetables and and of course the leafy greens are very popular because there's an instant market for them but the fact is it uh you know, just visit a botanical garden to see what can be grown indoors. Uh, and then you can see the next step is to grow them hydroponically. And, and so, and, and you're off and running. There's a well, obviously and push. It, it a, proves, wait, I'm going to just add, add one thing, Dixon. It kind of proves that, like, dirt is a thing of the past, right? Absolutely. Well, not a thing <laughs> of the past. We want to give it back to who used to own it. That is nature. Yeah. <laughs> good, that's, that's a very that's, good point. That is and a then, very, very good point. You know, you need to make everybody happy, including the other animals. <laughs> you know, because just because we're happy doesn't mean that everybody's happy, right? <laughs> that's true. Well, it, uh, when uh, when we've got a system that works, that's what creates sustainable happiness. And until and until that point, we control the things sure. that we can, which a is ourselves and b how we farm, I suppose. Indeed. And and really, you mentioned something before we went on the air about the the beauty of growing food and then communing around a table mm-hmm. with people that we care about, enjoying yep. the the harvest of the day or the harvest of that food. And I think that yeah. is what yep. makes this so appealing to to me and the work that I do. Is we're talking about the the cultivation of of a new culture or an old culture, the resurrection of an old culture that was very much That's, based upon this. Yeah, absolutely right. Absolutely right. We are out of time, and that means that we definitely have to have you come back again because we could go on for hours to. talking about sure. this. And I, I want to support this work because I just think it is so fantastic. And, oh, great. Um, great. The book is The Vertical Farm. The website is www.verticalfarm.com. And the amazing voice and guest this morning is Dr. <laughs> Dixon de Pommier. And 
you've been listening to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio, and we really have been talking about harvesting joy through how we feed ourselves and how we will feed the future with urban and vertical farming. Thank you so much, Dixon. Lisa, it was a beautiful. Likewise. Nothing gives happiness like a free gift. Lisa Cypress came and has made her first ebook, Got Happiness Now? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life, available at no cost to everyone. Unwrap your complimentary copy now by visiting www.harvestinghappinesstalkradio.com. Saturday afternoons on 97.5. Joy riding the coast with a global vibe, pleasing your ears and inspiring your mind. Joy riding the coast with me, Lisa Cypress Cayman. Saturdays, 2 to 5, on 97.5. KBU and RadioMalibu.net. Like what you hear on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio? Subscribe to us on iTunes and get your weekly dose of joy downloaded free and easily to your computer or portable device. That's Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio on iTunes. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, we are talking about one of my most happy subjects, and that is food. If we think of the passions that we have in our life, be it a person, a place, or a thing, or an idea, most of us will say that we love a good meal. And that's what we're talking about today. We're talking actually about the future of feeding, the future of food, urban farming, and conscious consumption of food. And my next guest are very unique indeed. Many of us who are carnivores are typically um, buying our meat at the supermarket. And yet there is a movement that is developing where meat is becoming available at farmer's markets. We're going back to kind of the old-fashioned way of doing things where we go to the butcher, we have a relationship with the butcher, and the butcher is sustainably raising or purchasing sustainably raised animals and that is the product that is being sold and my next guests are doing just about that heart and trotter is the name of the butchery and it's a whole animal butchery based in san diego california and its two founders are trey nichols and james holtzlag and heart and trotter is uh, producing or, or, or butchering beef, lamb, pork, and chicken from sourced, local, sustainable, antibiotic, and hormone-free 
family farms. So Hart and Trotter is tapping into the farm to table movement, which is just on fire down in San Diego, California. They receive humanely raised whole animals from farms within the state, south of San Francisco, and they more than just offer traditional cuts of meat. Hart and Trotter uses every edible part of the animal to make their products, including fresh sausages, pâtés, deli meats, stocks, charcuterie, dog food, and more. And their promise is that nothing will go to waste. And for those of you who are not in the know, San Diego, California has been at the forefront of the organic produce movement. H&T is proud to join this farm-to-table movement while educating the public on the importance of healthy, chemical-free, and humane farming. Good morning, guys. Good morning. Thanks for being here. I'm, I'm really excited to have you on the show because we're talking about a couple of things. We're talking about what happens to us as individuals when we follow our passions and we follow our heart and what happens to the products and the businesses that we create as a byproduct. And I think that what you're doing at Heart and Trotter does just that. We believe so also. Yeah, I don't even know we have to say left because you did a really good description of what we're doing down here. So, um, yeah, so thank you for that. Oh, well, it, it, it's my pleasure. And I am, you know, one of those foodie uh, consumers myself. So I'm, I'm like totally into what you're doing and um, can't wait to try some of your products. But let's talk about how you got into butchery because you are, you are fairly young guys. And um, some might say this is a quirky profession for a young guy in 2015. It definitely is. Um, it's uh, we're we're the the only ones down here in San Diego that uh, that do what we do. Um, we're the first of our kind, and the the way we got into it is um, is quite different. Uh, Trey and I we're uh, we're foodies ourselves basically, and uh, we moved out to San Diego and we saw that um, a lot of people didn't know where their meat was coming from. Um, it was a lot from the grocery store, it was from uh, some of the big box stores, and no one could really tell us, even ourselves, um, where where these uh, these animals were coming from. And so it's probably about five or six years back that we, we started thinking about the idea, but of course we were both on our path, our, uh, our new professions. And uh, it just so happened I got I got laid off from my job, my corporate position. And at that point, um, I went to Trey and I was like, "Hey, do you guys really want to do this? Um, this is my opportunity, and uh, we can we can go for it." And so that was um, basically the start of it. We always had the passion for it, and we just happened to fall on the means. Well, you know, I'm of a certain age, which I don't need to name exactly what that is, but I remember like my grandma going to the butcher, that that's where she bought her food. And as a, as a, as a, a child, maybe in my teens, that was no longer a la mode. In other words, there weren't any butchers around from whom to buy um, the meat products. And so you have uh, come to this by learning the art and the craft from I'm assuming an old time butchery. The uh, the butcher shop that I I did my apprenticeship at, it was um, they were they were fairly new. It's a it's a new take on an old school um, uh, practice, and so they were up in uh, that was the name of that butcher shop was Lindy and Grundy. They were up in uh, West Hollywood. That's where I did my apprenticeship, but. 
they came from New York, which uh, which is started at uh, at Fleischer's and in, uh, in New York, and um, that is a very old school butcher, and um, so they were taught. And basically did what we did. They um, they learned how to uh, butcher, learned how to do the whole um, old school butcher shop. Moved out to to L.A. and then I just so happened to meet them and go up and uh, do the same thing with the hopes of opening a butcher shop down here in San Diego. How does your butchery how how does it differ from others? It's a lot different from others. Um, I've worked at several other butcher shops in and around town, and um, for the most part, like you were saying, uh, most people get their uh, their meat from either the big box stores or the grocery stores. Even uh, even other butcher shops here in town, um, everyone has gotten gotten used to um, basically the the factory farm way of uh, of getting meat. So everything comes in boxes. It's all. Um, cut from a centrally located proce- or processing um, plant, typically out of the Midwest, and um, and then it is shipped across the country. And so you basically get boxes of primals. All you really have to do is cut the steaks. We get the whole animals, so we get the everything from the head to the tail. And so uh, we'll get it in and cut everything down by hand. And uh, that is that creates a possibility for us to really come up with some unique products and um, things that you generally don't see at uh, any other butcher shop or uh, grocery store. And when you talk about the animal coming into your shop as a whole animal, that means that you know where the animal comes from, how it was raised, and I, I can't help but go to uh, an episode of Portlandia, you know, where they're where they're talking about having the relationship <laughs> with <laughs> with the food in the restaurant. There's a couple having a meal, and they're talking to the waitress, and and, and they want to know the whole history of of their food, and then they have a flashback to a scene on a on a commune, which of course is going off topic, but it's very funny. <laughs> and and how does it relate to what you're doing? It's it's actually surprisingly similar to that. Um, as far as what they were saying, I mean, that's what our. I mean, to an extent, obviously not as uh, not as um, crazy as that got. <laughs> but um, our customers come in and they they want to know where uh, where the animal came from, what it ate, um, not necessarily what its name was or um, or anything like that. But uh, yeah, we are we work with small local ranchers where we are totally able to do that. Um, we specifically work with ranchers where our customers are actually allowed to go and check out the ranch themselves. Um, and uh, hopefully they won't pull be pulled into a, a commune situation. But anyway, um, that is uh, completely different. That's that's unheard of as far as your, your typical butcher shop. Indeed it is. And when we talk about the future of food, especially the farm-to-table movement, how does Hart and Trotter tap into this? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, there's actually an article in our local San Diego magazine this month about that. Um, it, it is really popular right now, and it's kind of a, a buzzword amongst restaurants and, and people. Um, but I, I don't know how you can get more farm to table than this when you, you know, on our chalkboard, we have each and every farm and ranch that we work with, where they are, and the name of them. Um, and you know, people can research this by going online. And we have, we have literature here in the uh, the shop that they can look at. But 
um, you really can't get much to our farm table than this. We bring in, you know, one or two animals per week of each animal, you know, chickens a little bit more, but, um, you know, when we're breaking down one animal, this is really the only true way our customers can know that their hamburger has one animal in it. You know, we've heard, heard and read stories where different hamburgers and, you know, different fast food chains, you can have over 600 DNAs in one hamburger, which is just crazy for me to think about. So when you come in here, you can, you're going to get one DNA in your hamburger. Basically what that means is that you're getting one whole animal that you know that was living on this one ranch probably less than a week ago, took to a humane, um, humane slaughterhouse and then brought to us very quickly within two to three days and it's hanging in our cooler. We actually give um, pretty frequently, you know, our customers are really excited about this and we, we bring them back. We bring them back in our, our cooler and show our meats hanging um, that, you know, we are a true whole animal butcher shop and they're, they're really fascinated to see that what's going on their plate. They've actually saw kind of, kind of where it, kind of the middleman where it happened and where it came from. Well, you, you bring up an interesting um, notion that for many of the naysayers or vegetarians out there who do not believe in the consumption of animals and would say there is nothing humane about what you're doing. And really the argument for that is if one chooses to eat meat in, in their diet and as part of their nutrition, to know the, the life cycle of that animal, how it was treated, and to know that it's coming from uh, a local place, it's not coming from a big factory or a mill, like you said, somewhere in the Midwest, I would think is a more socially responsible approach to consuming animal products. Yeah, Lisa, I agree with you. I was actually a vegetarian in Virginia for about five years growing up in middle school and high school. <clears throat> and so I, I completely see where people that would have that argument come from. Um, there's no pretty way around it. There is an animal basically dying for our for our nutrition and our food. But, you know, if you are going to eat meat, which a lot of Americans are, um, I, I would I would only eat meat knowing that it came from a farm that was humanely raised uh, on a farm that they were able to move around and they weren't fed, pumped a bunch of drugs and um, and then they were butchered in a humane way and, and with, with a lot of passion. We are going to need to go to a break. And I urge our listeners to jump on over to theheartandtrotter.com to learn more about what James and Trey are doing. On Facebook, the page is Heart and Trotter Butchery, and on Twitter, the handle is Heart and Trotter. And when we come back, we're going to talk more about um, the unique benefits of going to your local butcher, how this movement is growing, and how it really taps into a happiness and the future of food. You're listening to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio with Lisa Cypress Kamen, and we will be right back. like Lisa's take on happiness, well-being, and human flourishing? Join us this spring as Harvesting Happiness launches online classroom programming where Lisa Cypress-Kamen will offer her workshop series across the globe and from the comfort of wherever you are. Visit HarvestingHappiness.com for more details. Be a part of the grateful good. Grateful Nation brings together patients, families, friends, and staff of Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center 
to support the quality care and groundbreaking research at the Medical Center. Through new and traditional media, members of Grateful Nation share experiences, thank our caregivers and researchers, participate in sweepstakes, and gather to sponsor and host events and much more. Being grateful inspires others to be grateful as well. Isn't it time we jumpstart some perpetual gratitude? Visit Grateful Nation online to find out more at www.gratefulnation.org. Have a grateful day. Wow. I feel good. I knew that I wouldn't. I feel good. I knew that I wouldn't. So good. So Welcome good. back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, we are talking about the future of food and the conscious consumption of food. And we're doing it from a, a little bit of a unique approach with Heart and Trotter Butchery. With me in the studio is James Holtzlag and Trey Nichols. They are the co-founders and owners of Heart and Trotter Butchery located in San Diego, California. And we are talking about responsible um, slaughterhouse, responsible butchery, and, and how it differs from the meats that one would typically find when they walk into a big box supermarket. So guys, take it away because you've got some really unique products that you are creating down there in San Diego. Tell us about it. Yeah, so the the biggest challenge with uh, with being a whole animal butcher is really trying to figure out what products that we can use with all of the uh, the offcuts that uh, you typically don't see um, in a in a grocery store or anything like that. So, um, a lot of the high connective tissue, say like the uh, the heel, the calf. Um, calf part of the uh, the leg um, stuff that has like a lot of tendons and things like that the uh, the tails the heads the feet um, all of that stuff and so as a whole animal butcher shop we have to figure out a way that we can basically sell those parts and pieces and uh, maintain the um, the su sustainability of our uh, our butcher shop and so we've uh we're we're basically like a test kitchen we uh we try things we try new things all the time um and then uh some things stick some things don't but um a couple of the different stuff that we're uh different products that we're uh carrying we we do uh head cheese so head cheese is something where you actually take the um take the head of the pig boil it down and then uh cut up all the the little parts and pieces all the good bits take those out and then you pour the uh the the jus back over the the parts and pieces, and um, it creates a loaf, and then you just slice off pieces of uh, of amazing porky goodness. And so um, we do that. We do um, different kind of uh, liver pâtés. We do Braunschweiger. We do um, we do ready to eat foods like um, we prepare meatballs and have those ready to go, pre-cooked out of our uh, refrigerator, barbacoa. Um, using some of the uh, some of the parts and pieces of the animal that is generally hard to uh, hard to sell, uh, low simmering, long hours kind of a kind of a situation. Um, let me see, and then we do uh, everything in between. So your typical um, 
New Yorks and ribeyes to a lot of different offcuts to uh, scotch tenders and uh, velvet steaks and little parts and pieces that there's only one or two pounds on on a 1,200-pound animal. Um, we we supply it all. So the cool part about it is we have a lot of customers that come in and say, "Yeah, I'm from I'm from this country. I'm from South America. I just came from." Uh, Europe and I saw this. Um, can you guys make this? And uh, we always say yes because we have the ability to uh, to do anything. And you're making other products too. The sausages. Are you doing salamis? We're not doing salamis yet. Um, we we haven't got our state certification for that here in California. Um, we uh, we are in the process of getting that. It's just. Uh, it's just some paperwork, and we have to do some logging and stuff like that. But uh, we will be doing that hopefully here pretty soon. And you are opening up a little, um, I guess it's a snack bar, right? You'll be able to, to consume in, in, the, in the shop? That's right. We, uh, we built a, a patio out front. We're kind of calling it a front porch as of right now. And it can seat about maybe 15 or 16 people. Um, and the reason why we do that, for one, we are applying for our beer and wine license, so we're going to be selling local beers here. And um, you, you probably can't throw a, a beer without hitting a brewery in our neighborhood right now. I think there's maybe five or six. So there's plenty of uh, local local beers to choose from that we can provide our customers with as long as also with, uh, with wine as well. Uh, we'd like to be able to offer some Baja wines, which, which I think would be pretty neat because I don't think a whole lot of restaurants in town are able to offer some of those from uh, Valle de Guadalupe. Um, but we're also going to be doing charcuterie plates, and that's, that's going to include our, you know, our sausages, our uh, chicken liver mousse that people really like here, and our, our, our head cheese. And then we might outsource a little bit of uh, the salami, but it'll be from, um, you know, again, from local purveyors. Um, but we'll be doing like a sandwich of the day, and we'll have a limited number of sandwiches, say 30 or 40 in a day, 30 or 40 to order. Um, and you know, when we sell out, we sell out, but it'll be, a, we're making a house made pastrami that takes 11 to 12 days to make. And we're doing roast beef right now. Um, you know, our, our kind of opportunities are endless because we are a whole animal butcher shop. We've got every piece of the animal available to us. Um, and we've got some, our staff, you know, they're really good. They, everyone here pretty much has a, a culinary degree or has been cutting meat for, for several years. And, and they're really excited. Um, could kind of to add on what they've been doing in house to, to be able to sh have something to show for their you know their creativity and what they have to work with back here as well. And when we're talking about a conscious consumption, I want to just also bring up um, one of your other products, which is dog food. And in your effort to have no waste, that the animal is not wasted, that the animal's life is not given in vain, that every single part, as much as possible, is used and consumed. I think is 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 noteworthy. Tell us about the dog food. Yeah, so the dog food, we we actually get a lot of uh, a lot of trainers coming in, and um, it's a it's a raw dog food diet. We pretty much don't do anything to it. You see a lot of stuff that um, that they sell at your your local. Um, maybe high-end dog food place that has uh, that has all kinds of vegetables and other stuff in there, and so um, we found that uh, we the the byproduct one of the byproducts of whole animal is basically taking the connective tissue off of uh, off of the cuts and which we call silver skin, and uh, there's uh, there's good I mean a decent amount of uh, of meat once you start putting together five pounds of it together. 
um, we found that uh, a lot of a lot of people, a lot of dog trainers, have found that really beneficial for their dogs, including the uh, the fat also. And so we sell that just straight to uh, straight to the consumer or straight to the um, the trainer at a at a discounted rate. And um, we pretty because of that, we pretty much don't have any waste. It's a uh, it's an amazing process. I'm, I'm really that's something that I'm really excited about um, that I didn't necessarily foresee. I, I agree. It, it is very it, it is very exciting. And if you look at if one you know sort of wants to tap into their moral compass, if one is going to eat meat, I think from what you're sharing to do it in a responsible and sustainable fashion is is fabulous. Let's talk about the health benefits of eating a product such as yours that is boutique in nature, that is handcrafted or hand cut in nature versus something that comes from the big box grocery store. Sure. Um, first of all, the uh, ours, like Trey was saying, our products are um, they're, they're little travel. They've uh, they've come. They were slaughtered two or three days before we we get them, and then um, so they're as fresh as possible. Um, and then uh, the beef will will hang for a little bit, and just because that's that's the process you want it to the meat to tighten up a little bit before you actually start serving it. But um, since there our our beef and our all of our animals are all natural um, beef in particular, lamb in particular, 100% grass fed. Um, you've I'm sure you've heard that uh, that saying you are what you eat eats basically. And so since these animals aren't eating corn and soy um, as they're their main um, main diet, they're uh, they're getting a lot of the uh, omega threes um, from the grass that they eat, and that that actually transfers to to us, the uh, the human consumer. Um, we've had um, some uh, some professional sports teams buy animals from us, and uh, they wanted the they wanted uh, as much fat as possible, and um, and 100% grass fed and. It's uh, it's been working out with them really well as far as a, um, as far as a physical routine, and uh, their diet, dietitians and all that good stuff. Um, there's uh, there's a lot of benefits to it. Um, less fat, um, less cholesterol, uh, and uh, it's uh, it's a lot better for you. And you can taste the difference. A, a grass-fed animal tastes different than one that is receiving conventional uh, feed. It's, it's completely, yes. Completely, <laughs> yeah. There's, um, I mean, it's a. Uh, there's a lot more flavor in the meat itself. Everyone's heard that uh, that saying, um, "Fat is flavor," and and grass-fed beef, meat is flavor, and so uh, the meat itself has has amazing flavor. Um, and uh, it's it's funny. We have uh, we have people, younger people, that are absolutely astonished about the uh, about the way it tastes and love it. And we have um, an an older customer base that are that say that um, they remember eating beef that tasted like this when they were young. And um, it's uh, it's the generation before us that that really got into the whole corn-fed um, manufactured meat. Um, production that uh, that a lot of that flavor was simply bred out of the animals. Um, tell us what the neighborhood butcher shop can do to change the world. Because, I mean, as I see, you're building uh, it's sort of a flashback. It's going back to the days of a more simpler um, storefront operation, mom-and-pop style stores that are centered in neighborhoods. People have relationships with the purveyors of these products. And how... 
how is this changing the face of how we eat? So this is, it's a lot bigger than just our neighborhood. Um, this is something that, um, that has a lot of studies have been, uh, been worked on and it's basically, um, our the whole the whole factory farming um, situation uh, is one of the biggest uh, producers of greenhouse gas greenhouse gases in in the world, and so um, whether that be deforestation for the planting of uh, of corn or soy, and um, all the uh, transportation um, for animals to come from uh, from other continents that we sell here, basically we're keeping it local. We're cutting down as far as transportation the the general um, carbon footprint of, uh, of everything you eat here. And uh, that's, that's the biggest thing. Well, thank you for joining us on the show today. I want to give your information to our listeners. To learn more about Heart and Trotter, please visit theheartandtrotter.com or on Facebook, Heart and Trotter Butchery. And on Twitter, that handle is Heart and Trotter. Um, th- you guys gave a very enlightening view of um, having a relationship with our food, um, the face of the future and why it's important to buy local and, 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 and bringing back something that holds a place of nostalgia for me. So thank you for being with us and sharing what you do and sharing your passions with us. Here are a few thoughts before we part. Happiness is not a destination. It cannot be bought, sold, or traded. Happiness will never invite you to the party. It simply comes down to a choice to show up each and every day in the world with passion, purpose, place, and meaning. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen and my amazing guests today, James Holtzlag and Trey Nichols, as well as Dixon Despommier, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. And a quick shout out of thanks to our producers who make a shine each and every week, particularly Eric Anderson, and it's his birthday. Happy birthday, Eric. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio with Lisa Cypress Kamen. Join us every Wednesday morning live at 10 to 11 Central Time here on Toginet Radio. Then harvest your own happiness anytime from the comfort of wherever you are with free downloadable podcasts available at iTunes. To learn more about Lisa's filmography, felicitation, and philanthropy, please visit HarvestingHappiness.com. Each week, Harvesting Happiness presents engaging trendsetters, exploring our world through science, art, medicine, media, music, philosophy, politics, and the human heart, whose perspectives on life are sure to inspire, provoke, and engage. Lisa's diverse guests are a proactive collection of the greatest thinkers and doers who have devoted their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Like Lisa says, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following us on Twitter at hashtag Harvesting Happiness. Then join us again next week at this same time on the Toginet Radio Network.